Hey everyone, welcome back to Just the Good Stuff. I am your host, Rachel Mansfield, a very soon to be cookbook author of also Just the Good Stuff. My first cookbook is coming out February 25th and it is available for pre order right now. I link to it in the show notes on my blog. I have been making some of the recipes for some previews over on Instagram, but I am so excited to finally be able to share these recipes with you guys. I have been like quartering them over here for three years, which is wild to be working on something for so long. And then finally being able to talk about it, like my grain-free Pop-Tarts and sweet potato pierogies. And there's like a maple banana bread that's to die for. Jordan has recipes in it. I have these like not so piggy pigs in a blanket. There's tons of recipes, whether or not you're plant-based, meat-based, gluten-free, dairy-free, grain-free, you name it. There's recipes in the book for you, which is why I love it so much. It really is just a bunch of good stuff and good eats for everyone to enjoy. So thank you guys so much for all the pre-orders so far and spreading the love. I cannot wait to see you make some of these recipes in your own home, in your kitchens. So today's episode, Dr. Will Cole really needs no introduction, in my opinion. He is such an amazing human. He is one of the top functional medicine doctors in the world. He is also just one of the kindest and warmest people to talk to. You can tell how much passion he has for what he does. He loves being able to help people. He is so incredibly generous in the amount of knowledge that he shares with his patients and on Instagram and in interviews. And you guys are going to learn so much in this episode, which I I love it. I don't usually re-listen to episodes after I go through them once to edit it. And I've already listened to this one a few times and I'm still learning new things and still writing it down. We talk about everything from high cortisol to adaptogens. He shares his favorite kombucha. I also had him share his like dream day of food and like go-to fast food order. So definitely listen till the end so you can hear that. We talk about leaky gut and SIBO and bloating and poop, digestion. There is a lot of good stuff in this conversation and I cannot thank Dr. Bolkol enough for coming on the podcast to talk about this because he is just, I'm in awe over the amount of knowledge that he knows. And he has recently a new book called The Inflammation Spectrum. He's also the author of Ketotarian. So Dr. Wilkel is very, he's a very, very busy man. He's also a dad of two. He's married. I don't know how he does it. I need all of his tips of how he like stays sane and still continues to like grow his empire. So if you guys do enjoy this episode, please rate and review the podcast. It means so much to me and it couldn't only take like one to two minutes, if that, to leave a little something just to show that you are enjoying the episodes. I love, love reading them. And I also love seeing when you guys like take a screenshot, listening to it on your phone and then share it on stories. Half the time you're posting about it before I'm even sharing that the episode is live, which truly makes my day because every other Monday, the new episodes are live. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will talk to you guys soon. All right, everybody. I have Dr. Will Cole here with me today, except this interview is via Skype, my second Skype podcast interview ever. And I'm, you know, I wish that you were sitting here next to me in my, in my bedroom, which I don't mean inappropriately, but I do record most, uh, podcast episodes in here, which is a little unconventional, but 
until I'm done nursing Ezra. That's what we're going to be doing. But I'm excited to bring you on the show today and talk to you about all the things I don't talk about normally. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. It's going to be fun. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, first of all, I want you or I would love for you. I have to keep stop telling stop saying to people, I want you to do something for me. I would love for you to introduce yourself, um, explain to my listeners who you are, why you are so amazing, um, and give us give us your little intro spiel. Yeah, sure. So I am a functional medicine practitioner. So my day job is consulting patients around the world via webcam primarily. So it's uh, I love it. It's my passion and my heart is really for people that are struggling with food disillusionment and health problems on like what the heck they should do. And we live in this culture of Dr. Google, you know, and to really get clarity and food peace uh, and wellness clarity uh, is, is my mission. So that's my day job. And then I write books. So I've written uh, Ketotarian. It's a mostly plant-based keto book. Uh, and my second book, which just came out recently, is called The Inflammation Spectrum. And I co-host uh, Goop Fellas, which is Goop's um, sort of spinoff podcast with Seamus Mullen, who's a chef, and also Keto Talk I've hosted for two years uh, as well. But uh, all of it's you know in the spirit of grace and lightness and bringing that back into wellness, which I think it's lost. People are in these food tribal wars, and it's creating a whole host of problems. And I think that context matters, balance matters, and uh, consulting patients keeps me uh, clear on the reality that we're all different and we're all trying to do the best thing with the access we have and the information we have and where we're at on our health journey. So that's that's my day job. That's what I do. I mean, just a couple of things here and there. You are amazing. I'm. That's a very impressive lineup that you have there, my friend. Um, well, that's what you were just saying before. That's something that I really admire about you is that you make this whole industry accessible for everyone. Um, and at this point, I feel like I know you well listening to Goop Fellows and I listened to a handful of your other podcast episodes, but I love your perspective on health overall. And you know that it's not just one size fits all. There's no cookie cutter way. Um, and that's something I'm very cautious about the things that I share on my Instagram and blog. And I never say when I'm doing something because I what something that works for me might not work for somebody else. Um, when I polled Instagram to say that you're coming on the podcast, there was an influx of questions and topics. And I was trying in my brain to really organize how I wanted this interview to pan out. And this is the first one I'm coming to with notes, by the way. Usually I just, everything's off the top of my head, but these are things that aren't just like things that I would think of. And I want to make sure my listeners are getting like the information that they want. So I do have some notes. So if I'm referring to my phone, I'm not like texting my mom or something um, just to make sure I have all my topics. But the first topic that I selfishly want to talk about, because I think that it's fun and it's a good way to kind of like break the ice a little bit is poop. Mm. And I want it like like which we can then talk about digestion a little bit more now. Jordan, my husband and I have a very, very open relationship in the sense where we've been together for almost 10 years. Poop isn't, I'm very open. Like I would tell the cashier at Whole Foods that I just took a poop. I don't care. <laughs> I, <laughs> but I know not everyone's like that and not everyone knows what like a quote healthy or regular cycle looks like. Mm -hmm. In my 
eyes, it's going at least once a day. And as long as it's not too loose and looks kind of like a snake, maybe that's supposed to be healthy. But Mm -hmm. when I wake up in the morning around, everyone's just going to know my schedule. I get up around like 630. I immediately go to the bathroom. And on the days that I don't go to the bathroom at that time, I won't leave my house. I will not leave my house. I get so thrown off. So is it regular? Is it like you're supposed to go every day? Tell us the rundown on like poop mm-hmm. and all things we should be knowing about it. Sure. A, a run, rundown is probably not the best uh, way. To- <laughs> <laughs> I know. I tried to be secretly funny there. I'm happy that you caught on to it. <laughs> What's the rundown? Okay. So uh, it is something that I, like you, I talk about it so much just on a professional level that I forget when I'm in mixed company, as they say that it's like, oh, wow, that's not normal. And I see like the spouse, like blush, like at the consult or like, it's, that's actually something that's quite important and we should talk more about, but, but, uh, it is a window into somebody's health in many ways. So, uh, you are absolutely right. It's one to two snakes a day. You can quote me on that, uh, is that is what is considered normal. Now, if you are, like there's exceptions to that, of course, but generally speaking, that is what's considered normal. And if it's looser or if you're more constipated, if you're not going every day, the quality and the frequency matters. And it's normally a window or a check engine light, if you will, that something's going on with the body or maybe and should be looked into. Well, what if some like when your stool is a little bit on the looser side, is that usually always correlated? Would you say to like food or different stressors. Like for me, I have very high cortisol levels, which we'll also get to. But when I, I know when I'm overly stressed, like I have, I have the runs for like weeks. Um, now what is there, like, what can you do to help manage like loose stools in a way? You have to find out what's driving it. So you have to Mm -hmm. look at stress. You have to look at food. You have to look at supplements. You have to look at medications for some people that can all impact uh, stool consistency. There's what's called the Bristol chart. People can Google it and they can kind of see visually what's normal, what's not normal. And that the reality is like looser stools or, or sluggish stools are there's a lot of differential possibilities of what could be causing that. So you have to kind of do a workup both on a clinical level, if you want to see a functional medicine doctor or for yourself, for you to take an inventory for yourself and just say, okay, what, what's going on here? Uh, because just because something's common doesn't necessarily mean it's normal. And many people go through these health problems and digestion's one part of that, but that this could apply to energy levels and so many other things too. That just because you're going through something every day doesn't necessarily mean, oh, this is normal. It's, and people settle for things like that. And we, this is good that we're talking about it because uh, it's... And now what about probiotics? Do you think that that is like a necessity in everyone's daily supplement intake in order to go every day? No, certainly not. It's not a necessity for everybody. It can be a tool to use to improve digestion and improve gastrointestinal health, but it's not a must be for everybody. Food comes first, right? You can't supplement your way out of like eating junk food. So you have to really look at uh, food first and food, looking at healthy fibers and eating really nutrient dense foods, that's food for your microbiome. So I think prebiotics and fiber from plant foods are prebiotics. Uh, That's very important for our gut microbiome, all the trillions of little bacteria that live in our gut. So I, I think that comes first. And fermented foods are a great food way 
to support probiotic function, uh, probiotic uh, inoculation of the microbiome. So things like um, kefir or kefir or uh, yogurts and uh, kombuchas and all of these sort of fermented foods and drinks can be other ways to get good bacteria in our gut. That was my next question was kombucha because I feel like it gets a really bad rep in the space sometimes for like high sugar content. But I mean, I, I drink a kombucha every day. You're going to learn I'm like a sugar fiend in a way which probably <laughs> destroying me. Um, but I do drink a kombucha every day and I psychologically tell myself it's more probably a placebo effect. And I'm like, it's fine. It helps me stay regular when really I just used to binge drink Diet Coke and look for any excuse to drink a carbonated sugar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be honest. But do you think that like drinking a kombucha and other beverages that are claimed to be like pre and probiotic, like do actually do something? Yeah, they, they do. Uh, you want to, you do want to look at sugar content. If that's a goal for you to limit sugar, just because it's in, uh, in whole foods, does not necessarily mean it doesn't have high sugar? So the tartar, the better when it comes to kombucha is one taste way to kind of assess sugar content, read labels if if sugar limitation or like uh, cutting down on sugar is a goal of yours. But look, they use sugar mm. in the fermentation of kombucha, but the, the SCOBY, which is the symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast they use to make kombucha, uh, eats up the sugar. So while sugar is maybe labeled on there, because it's used in the fermentation process. Yeah. If you look at the grams, it's actually not that, and the other gram, not not the gram, but the grams of sugar, uh, it's not that much, especially if you get the tartar kind. So I, I don't think it's that big of a deal for most people. Do you have a favorite kombucha brand and flavor? Yeah, I do. I, I GTS is obviously the leader in the space. I think that they've done good job, a good job of uh, democratizing and, and getting the word out there for kombucha. I like the brand uh, Bucci. Bucci. Oh, I've never had Bucci. that. Yeah, I think it's called Bucci. They're based in Charlotte, but they're in certain Whole Foods. They have one called. Each one's a. Um, a element. There's a fire and a water and an earth. The fire one is fire. Uh, it's like, like spicy. spicy. Yeah. Oh no, I can't do it. <laughs> Stick to the water one. Then. <laughs> I but can't handle spice. They they have like a, a really interesting like sea buckthorn and uh, herbs and adaptogens in it and like these strange ingredients that you never would think should be in a kombucha. Wow. All of these elements there, and I have again no financial connection with Bucci. I'm selling them like I I do, but I, I they're just they taste good. Amazing. Well, I'm gonna look into that. I do drink usually like GTS or Grab Healthy. Um, but right now GT's has like a limited edition one and it's like carrot, apple, cinnamon. It tastes like I'm drinking apple pie. It's so good. I actually yeah. had one this morning. Um, you briefly actually just brought up adaptogens, which I had for later on in my, on my, uh, guide to our, guide to our podcast interview, but you are an adaptogens like junkie for lack of a better term. I think you're a huge fan of them. I've heard you say, I don't know where something about like lion's man and I drink for sigmatic. I don't dive too deep on like mm -hmm. the actual like benefits for it because I'm never comfortable going on my Instagram and saying, I drink Rebel because it's good. Like it has adaptions and this is what they're good for. I don't like making those claims because I'm not a professional. I just, I drink things because I love them and I've heard they're good for you. I'd love for you to kind of dive into adaptogens and like your top three that you love and, and how you incorporate them. Yes. Uh, so adaptogens for people that don't know, they're a big, it's an umbrella term for 
plant medicines, earth medicines that have a few things in common. They're tr used traditionally in different parts of the world. So in Ayurvedic medicine, in Oriental medicine, in Native American medicine, all around the world, there are adaptogenic medicines that have been used. Uh, but they have a quality of balancing. So they tend to balance stress hormones, cortisol levels, they tend to balance inflammation, and they tend to work upon the brain hormonal axis and sort of balance, have a balancing hormonal effect, uh, cortisol being one of them, but also other ones are traditionally used for thyroid hormones, female hormones, things like that. Now, they're used, like you can get them in things like kombucha, like a lot of different wellness brands are putting them in different tonics and elixirs and powders and blends, things like that. But uh, I like having them as you mentioned, Four Sigmatic, I think they're a great brand. Uh, Tarot's doing really cool things. Uh, they're mixing them in, in coffee and different elixirs. You can, they're convenient because they're in those little packets. Uh, or you can just get a tea, tea bag of another adaptogen. I, my three favorites are um, Tulsi, or holy basil, which is used in Ayurvedic medicine. Uh, I love lion's mane, which you mentioned. It's really good for, and there's studies to show that it supports brain function and improving cognition and uh, optimal brain function. Uh, and third, I would have to say, I like ashwagandha, uh, which is another Ayurvedic adaptogen as well. There's so many to pick from, but those, those are three. And then if I had to go with the fourth, I think Shashandra is another one that's generally used to support female hormone balance and that's another one that i could keep going but those are like that's the... like my friend's daughter's name it sounds like. <laughs> yeah it is <laughs> i've like never the... heard of that one <laughs> yeah it's a, it's an adaptogen how do you take them on a daily basis like do you use products that have them in them or do you do like supplements i will typically have them in all different forms. So depends on what I, 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 to be honest with you, I don't take adaptogens, the same ones every day, all day. So I almost see them as like a tool in my toolbox. So yeah. if I'm having like a really stressful day at, at work, I'll, I'll bring it into my like toolbox. If I, uh, am like at a book deadline, I'll maybe have more of it around that time. Or if I, uh, whatever it's, it's a tool in the toolbox. I don't see it as like a multivitamin or like a vitamin D, uh, even though some people do that are struggling with hormonal imbalance or inflammation, they do use it more medicinally, um, from a natural medicine standpoint. I myself don't need to do that. So, uh, I will take them in the form of tea. I will put them in smoothies, uh, like powders and, and smoothies, I will have them in capsule form. And I get sent a lot of adaptogens too, <laughs> because I talk about them so much. So I find myself <laughs> like sampling different kinds, all, all the, all the adaptogens, uh, which I enjoy as well. So there's so many cool ways you just have to kind of use them. However, makes sense for you and whatever you enjoy, but there's different ways to take them. What's your favorite for, or that you would recommend for like high cortisol or high stress? Uh, I Tulsi for sure. Uh, holy Tulsi, basil. I gotta look into this. Yeah, Tulsi, T U L S I or holy basil. Okay. Um, I actually I use Tulsi in a blend that I formulated with Agent Natura, which is like sort of a, a natural beauty line. They had me formulate with them the this thing called they they call it Holy Youth, which I I put marine collagen in it, and the main adaptogen is. Holy basil or Tulsi, because it's known in Ayurvedic as the queen of adaptogens, uh, which is cool. Uh, and uh, it's there's a lot of 
uh, ancient, like anecdotal studies, like uh, information out there and research is really catching up with that uh, ancient uh, traditional medicine too, to substantiate the mechanism of how it lowers cortisol levels or balances cortisol. And obviously like everyone should be asking like their own, like doctor, what I'm about to ask you, but as someone like I'm currently breastfeeding and when I was pregnant, do you think that those are safe while you're breastfeeding or pregnant? They should, they should definitely talk to the doctor, the specific cases, but generally, yeah, they are considered safe. Uh, Adaptogens. I do have patients that I'm consulting. I have them go off of them during pregnancy, uh, not because there's a, a lot, there's really, there's no research to show they're, they're negative. It's just the general rule in functional medicine and Western medicine for that matter to err on the side of let's just keep things simple during pregnancy. So that's one of the things that have people go off of during pregnancy, but not necessarily during nursing, but of course, talk to your doctor. It's on every single product. Like, please cons- like, t- consult your doctor if you're breastfeeding or like pregnant. I'm like, when am I just going to be able to like pick up a product and <laughs> consume it without like second guessing every single thing that I intake into my body? Um, I want to yeah. back up a little bit on gut health slash the poop and digestion. So I personally, at least to my knowledge, have never like suffered knock on wood from digestive issues or a leaky gut or IBS or anything. I know when I have like loose stools or a stomach ache, anything stomach related for me, it's always related to high cortisol. It's when I'm not taking good care of myself. I'm not slowing down. But there was an influx of questions about leaky gut and IBS and how to manage this and like tips and bloating and I don't even know how to start about bloating because if I have to hit, listen to somebody else say that they're bloated, I might just, in my opinion, bloating sometimes is just normal or common. It's people are going to bloat at some points, but I don't even know where to begin in asking you about these topics because they were just like, does he have any tips for leaky gut? Does any tips for IBS and anything that you're comfortable sharing? I'd love to hear mm-hmm. kind of your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think we... I think that's very interesting. And it's something that I also see on social media. And obviously I see consulting patients. We have an epidemic of, and I'm using this term broadly, gut health problems. Uh, and w- under that sort of uh, umbrella of gut health issues, things like intestinal permeability, people are hearing about on the blogosphere uh, and wondering if they have it, or they've got a functional medicine lab that kind of measured the way that you measure it and the way that we run labs to measure this and quantify this is measuring the proteins that govern gut lining permeability, which is they're called occludin and zonulin. They're like the gut gatekeepers. So you can measure on a blood test the antibodies to these proteins. And also you can measure antibodies to uh, lipopolysaccharides or LPS, which are bacterial toxins on gram-negative bacteria. So basically, the mechanism would be if the bacteria is leaking into the blood and you're able to measure LPS, these bacterial toxins in a blood antibodies to them, that's a sign that there may be intestinal permeability or leaky gut syndrome. Why people are asking that on your Instagram is because there's so much research around. If you go on PubMed and look at the amount of studies looking at leaky gut syndrome or increased intestinal permeability, and it's linked in association to uh, heart disease and autoimmune conditions and blood sugar issues and hormonal problems, just inflammation in general. So a lot of gut-centric components inflammation is really coming out and it's trickling down from the research into the blogosphere and then into mainstream sort of awareness. So we have to look at food 
we have to look at food and how that impacts intestinal permeability and love our body enough to make to feed it good things that make us feel good and taste good, uh, but also promote optimal health. And that's really my heart's work on this. And something that I talk about in the inflammation spectrum is what I call the core four that studies have shown to be the most likely to cause intestinal permeability and drive inflammation levels up. That's things like grains, primarily wheat, but other gluten-free grains can cross-react as gluten. So things like corn and rice can be similar enough in structure to an overreactive inflamed immune system that the immune system thinks it's gluten. Uh, That's called uh, cross-reactivity. So grains, Second would be dairy, mainly conventional dairy, added sugar, which I love sugar just like you too. So there's no no shame here, but sugar. And then fourth would be high omega-6 oils like canola oil, vegetable oil. It's in a lot of packaged foods. So that's for uh, what I've seen clinically and the studies to show this too. Those are the four things that are most likely to contribute to gut problems for people. And that's not to say they're all bad for all people, but the the what I want people to consider is what works for your body and to find food peace and clarity on this stuff. Because some people can tolerate some of those foods, some people can't. So that's bioindividuality, which is the heart of functional medicine. But yeah, for some starting points, uh, those are some things to consider. And then there's many herbs and protocols and tactics that we use in functional medicine to go beyond that. But that's a good starting point. I almost feel like those four things. And while I'm not, I don't really have many like food intolerances or allergies besides my random allergies, like strawberries and eggplant and soy, but like things like like heavily processed oils and processed sugars aren't really things that really most people like need to consume to live like a good and healthy and nutritious life anyway. So cutting those out or just having them like in moderation when you're at a birthday party or out to dinner Obviously, yeah. I'm getting food out to dinner that has canola oil, but like I move on with my life. Yeah. But when I'm home cooking in my kitchen, I don't really use many processed sugars or like my forms of sugar, manu- raw manuka honey from like Wetterspoon or an, a maple syrup or coconut sugar. Like I'm not cooking with like heavy sugars or or anything. Um, yeah. And same thing with oils, like avocado oil and coconut oil. Like what's your, and olive oil. I actually, I don't use olive oil as much as I should. And I don't know why, but I never have it in my kitchen. Jordan, mm-hmm. I only use avocado oil and coconut oils for the most part. What's your favorite oil to cook with? To cook with avocado oil. Same thing. It you. Yeah. It has a high smoking point, which you want to, obviously, yeah. you know, you know this, but I mean, the, the, the people out there need to just be mindful of the smoking point. So avocado oil is my favorite to cook with. Extra virgin olive oil is my favorite oil to have at room temperature because there's so many exciting studies being associated with longevity and healthy heart and brain and hormones and all the good stuff that you want. Um, now, when it comes to bloating, do you have any tips on how to de-bloat? The number of questions on how to de-bloat or like tips was very overwhelming. Like for me, I just chug a lot of water go to sleep and wake up in the morning ho- and hope for the best after I go to the bathroom. But like, mm-hmm. what are your tips if like you are feeling bloated? Sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a very, uh, it's a problem that a lot of people are having. And I talk about this at length in the inflammation spectrum because I do see it so much. So this, this larger digestive inflammation spectrum, you have mild bloating 
on one end of that spectrum where it's, it is the thing that maybe you can sleep off, drink a lot of water and rebound from. And then some people, and a lot of people that I talk to, we're talking about very significant bloating and I don't, it's not rare. Oh, it's wow. we're dealing with like, they could, they say, I look pregnant. That's what all of the people, a lot of women say to me by the end of the day, I look pregnant or after I eat food, I look pregnant and it's painful. It's uncomfortable. It's not when we hear the word bloating, it's so used so flippantly in our culture. We just say, yeah, it's just bloating. Yeah. We're talking about, and I think that's what people are asking you on social media. It's not just general bloating. It is significant bloating. Uh, and that's what the impetus is to find solutions because it's quite uncomfortable. Uh, the oftentimes, and this goes back to the sort of gut issues that we're seeing in our culture is there are underlying dysfunctions that are driving that. The most common gut dysfunction that's associated with significant bloating is something called SIBO. It's an acronym that stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And that is basically good bacteria growing where it shouldn't grow in higher amounts into the small intestine, which is associated with bloating, IBS, and acid reflux or GERD uh, and indigestion. So that's sort of the underlying dysfunction that you can measure on a lab. It's a SIBO breath test that we run for patients. And you can see if it's hydrogen or methane dominant. Basically, is the bacteria in your gut loving the food that you're eating so much that it's gobbling it up and then causing that distended stomach and uncomfortable symptoms uh, and possible IBS symptoms too. So that is, if that's the case, then you have to deal with the SIBO. You have to deal with, you know, and go through an antimicrobial protocol to kill off that, that overgrowth, which takes time. It's not a quick fix. It's definitely a journey that we have to help patients through. And there could be things like yeast and fungal overgrowth. And of course, SIBO and yeast and fungal overgrowth are, can increase intestinal permeability or leaky gut syndrome too. So then you have this sort of cascade of issues that could be going on. So if that's going on, you have to deal with the underlying cause. But if you're looking for sort of uh, general things for people to experiment with on their own. I love digestive bitters, uh, which are come in little tinctures. I, I don't know of any, I think one's called uh, urban apothecary is one or I, I don't, oh. don't quote me on that. It's a, there's, there's a brands out there. If you go on Amazon, look at the reviews, look at reputable brands. Uh, I, I don't, I can't think of the brand names themselves, but they are, um, basically condensed forms of bitter greens. They're extracts from bitter greens uh, that are used to help with the bloating and the indigestion, the digestive symptoms. So that's not going to deal with the dysbiosis. It's not going to deal with the bacterial overgrowth as much as it needs if that's what's going on. But if it is mild enough bloating, moderate bloating, digestive bitters are a tool to use. I also love Glangle broth, which is related to ginger. So you could use ginger if you wanted to, but glangle is you can make a broth out of like ginger's cousin. Uh, and uh, it's a nice soothing for the gut. And bone broth can be quite calming and restorative to a gut, to a bloated gut as well. And cooking vegetables. So people that have bloating, they probably shouldn't be having raw vegetables. Uh, and I can't tell you how many people that are getting bloating and pain and excessive symptoms salads. It's not the salad's fault. It's the gut problem that needs to be dealt with. So cooking vegetables, having them soft cooked in soups and stews, or just cooking them breaks it down for you, your body. So, cause digestive requires a lot of energy. So cooking it down or having pureed vegetables and soups and stews for a sensitive gut, a stressed out gut can really uh, be a good aid to bloating as well.
See, my heart like breaks for people that like are truly, truly bloating to the point where like they're actually uncomfortable and like look pregnant. And but then I feel like sometimes on Instagram and other outlets, there's just such an over like talk. There's too much talk about bloating to the point where it's like, oh, my God, sometimes you're just going to eat something. You're going to look a little puffy and it's going to go away. But I like never realized that people like actually like don't look like themselves. When I was going through infertility treatment, I looked more pregnant during those few months from all of the like hormones and this and that than I did for the first like four months of pregnancy. So I know bloat can definitely happen, but yeah. I like never really think to even like look to food, which is, I guess, digestive issues are one of the few things I don't have to uh, really personally struggle with, knock on what I feel to pick our, pick our battles, I guess. Mm-hmm. But that's very interesting. Um, I want to transition a bit into high cortisol and stress. Now, I actually do want to start coming to see you as, as a patient, um, for this probably more when I'm done with nursing. Cause I think that my body, it's not back yet. Um, it's yeah. uh, even if I got blood work, like who knows how accurate it is. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm going to probably ask you about too, but I've had, I was like told I have high cor- high cortisol. I actually would see Dr. Frank Lipman in Manhattan, but now that I live in Hoboken, it's just like not practical for me to be like shuffling into the city to like go. See, I love him so much. I wish that he would just open in Hoboken, which will never happen. Um, <laughs> and I was told I did like this spitting into the saliva, spit my saliva into like tubes and like got, and my cortisol was basically like astronomically high all day and never dropped. Um, and he looked at me in his office and he said, you're going to like die if you don't somehow learn to manage this. And mm-hmm. truthfully, I don't know if I still to this day have learned to manage my high stress and high cortisol for me. And I've opened up about this like on my blog and Instagram, but I know like I get racy heart. I'm like rushing to everything. My stomach hurts. Like I get like shooting pains, like in my upper stomach, I have loose bowels and I go to acupuncture, but again, I go to places in Manhattan, which then stresses me out to like get to the place in Manhattan because I think I'm going to be late. I'm going to be doing, there's just so many things going on. And I'd love to kind of learn a few tips from you on, well, first of all, let's let's backtrack a little. Unless someone has, if if someone thinks that they have high cortisol levels, how do you recommend getting those tested? Yeah. So cortisol uh, is a stress hormone. It's secreted from the adrenal glands. And we have what's called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or the HPA axis. So what we commonly refer to in the blogosphere and the wellness world, like social media world, is adrenal fatigue is really a brain-based issue. It's not an adrenal problem. So the way that you quantify that and where the studies are kind of pointing to as being a good way of measuring that is urine and saliva. It's a cortisol awakening response or CAR. There's a lot of studies to show that that's a good indication of the HPA axis. And you can obviously measure it throughout the day and through different points. And that's probably what you did. Um, and that's urine and saliva. So we run what's called a Dutch test, which is, it sounds very yeah. European and like, cool, but it's like an acronyms for dried urine, something, something, something. So the, um, it's less glamorous than it sounds. No, it, I did that too. I think I remember doing that, but it's got a lot of good data and you can get not only cortisol, stress hormones, but female hormones. So estrogen, progesterone, look at testosterone, which is important for women and men. Uh, so that's how you run it. Uh, and remember, and, and for people that are listening out there, and I see this a lot on labs is that they will get, will get the labs back 
And cortisol may be really low for people that are fatigued. And then people are like, what the heck? I thought cortisol was supposed to be really high. Uh, and it may have been high at one point, but cortisol is not inherently bad. It's balance, just like we, we need balance in all parts of our body and in our life. So we want cortisol to be higher in the morning in this nice S-shaped circadian rhythm throughout the day. So it's actually uh, needed for energy, healthy, balanced cortisol levels. And it's uh, an immunosuppressant, a natural like your body makes it. It's an anti-inflammatory. So cortisol is actually needed to balance and keep checks and balances for inflammation. So low cortisol, you, you'll still feel tired and wired and tired is typically how people feel there. But inflammation will oftentimes be really high when cortisol is low. So when you see cortisol high, yes, external stressors can be part of that or lack of sleep, et cetera. But also intern like body inflammation can drive cortisol levels up because the body's trying to regulate that inflammation. So it's always you want to ask like what is upstream to this? Like what's actually causing the body to have high cortisol if that's the case for you? Or if it's low, like what does that look like? Or you'll see imbalance sort of like a roller coaster throughout the day. But cortisol calms inflammation, you need it for energy, and it regulates blood sugar and blood pressure too. So people that have like that, like they get dizzy when they get up or they have like postural orthostatic like tachycardia issues like they get dizzy very frequently that can be you'll see cortisol being impacted too so uh that's how you find it and that's kind of the things to consider when you're talking about those issues that's so interesting because the last couple of months and like my parents and jordan can even when they they'll attest to this that i'll randomly get so dizzy out of nowhere. And it's like, I had just eaten. I know I drink, I drink like a fish. Like I, I know I drink enough water and I can't figure So that could be linked to cortisol being off. Yeah. You're, um, I have to sit down. Like I can't. And it sometimes it's scary because at five 30 until like seven 30, it's just Ezra, my son and I, and sometimes he's like screaming and I'm so dizzy. I can't get up. And I'm just like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? And I just have to like breathe for a few seconds. I drink water. I usually like have a bunch of like simple meals, crackers or something. I can, you know, I could just yeah. grab. Cause I, at first I thought it was blood sugar. Um, yeah. that's fair. That's my next cortisol symptom, I guess. <laughs> it definitely could be. And a lab could quantify that. Something that yeah. I, I help again, some people may need more than this, but a, a little tip and trick that's works for some people. If they're having that dizziness or lightheadedness or they're craving salt is to use, uh, something called sole water, S-O-L-E, is basically high concentrated salt water that you make your, at home, very simply. I have the recipe in the inflammation spectrum, but I use it to balance cortisol for people that are having sort of the dips and valleys of that uh, cortisol roller coaster. Oh, I'm going to look into that. Thank you. Um, look, so you're already helping me and we're, you didn't even get any of my uh, work back. I'm gonna, And it's weird because we were just in Florida for a week and I Which took some time very, off. looked very nice, by the way. Thank you. I didn't take a maternity leave when Ezra came, so it was much needed to kind of just decompress for the three days that I was able to. But I, I like addicted to what I like. I can't go off, off the grid for too long, but I didn't get dizzy at all there. So I know it's related to like my everyday life, et cetera. Now, um, what are your tips for someone who does have high cortisol, like ge general things that like usually seem to work for people that, that have that, that they can do or supplements they can incorporate? Uh, well, adaptogens are one way to balance that out. So look at Tulsi, look at rhodiola, some other, the like adaptogens we haven't talked about, uh, to consider. Uh, and, uh, the other 
thing to consider is looking at your stress levels and really looking at stress, not just saying, well, that's stress less, meditate more, but ultimately, are you having healthy margins in your life? What is your, what do your relationships look like? What's your job look like? What's your sleep look like? These things are needed to be, there needs to be a reckoning for some people that are living their life. That's not, it's, it's, it's sabotaging how they're feeling and you can't change everything. So if you can't change it, you need to find a healthy relationship and kind of shift how you respond to certain things. So I think it's looking at all aspects of our life that can be contributing to the imbalance of how you're feeling. Uh, and sleep is a central part of that, that I find a lot of people, uh, know obviously that they need to be sleeping better, but they're not uh, giving it the gravity that it deserves. And obviously there are seasons in our life, right? New moms, new dads, <laughs> you, you know, a struggle is real. I've been there. I have two kids myself. Like it is, it is something that that's, you have to do the best you can at this point in the season of your life. But then there are people where the kids are older and growing up and they're still not sleeping well. Uh, and you have to look at technology and screen time and blue light and all of these components that we take into consideration when we're looking at a patient's life and saying, okay, look, this is sabotaging your sleep. You need to have healthy margins with technology sometimes and, and looking at these things that are sabotaging, not just the quantity of sleep, but the quality of restorative sleep. How many hours is, I know you just said like uh, quality over quantity, but how many hours of sleep do you recommend for most people? For most people, it's going to be eight to nine hours of restorative sleep. If you want to be a little bit looser, so you could say seven to nine. No, I'm taking your nine and I'm going to run with that because I love <laughs> <laughs> Now I'm someone who wakes up twice in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, like pee. I have to pee. I, I don't know. Since I've been pregnant, it wasn't a problem. I, I would pee like one time at 3 a.m. before Ezra. And no, even if I stop drinking like fluids or liquids at like 7.30, if I don't drink anything after I go to bed at like 9.30, 10, I still pee two times throughout the night. How can I nix this habit? It sucks. Well, it it's, I think going, if the person's drinking water too late in the day, that could be a problem. Uh, caffeine is a mild diuretic too. So looking at caffeine intake, um, wearing a diaper, just kidding. That, oh, wait, I contemplated. <laughs> uh, and, you know, limiting it, fluid intake is really the only other way, unless there's something driving that. I and mean, people with insulin resistance, which I would assume is not you, but people that have metabolic syndrome, prediabetes, diabetes, they do have frequent urination. That's a whole different problem. For most people that aren't dealing with that, it is, uh, it's fluid intake that they have to like slow down towards the end of the day. Now, waking up once, you know, twice to do that may be normal for some people, but they have to, obviously, if they have problems falling back to sleep, that's a problem that we have to look at. But trouble falling asleep or staying asleep or both is definitely something that people need to, to uh, take into consideration because it's so needed. Just research shows just one night of poor sleep can increase high sensitivity C-reactive protein or HSCRP. That's one night of poor sleep, let alone the epidemic of sleep disorders that's out there right now. Yeah. Sleep is my everything. I go to sleep by like 9.45, 10 o'clock every night and I get up at like 6.30. And if I 
Like when we were in Florida, I, I would look up, up oh, 9.15, just pumped. I got to go to bed. My dad was like, really? We're on the balcony. I'm like, no, I'm going to bed. I got to get up. If I don't get my sleep, you don't want to know me. So when Ezra wasn't sleeping through the night and I didn't like nurse him and pump every two to three hours, I was like the wicked witch of Hoboken. Like you didn't want to be around me. I had like my first ever <laughs> panic attack. If I don't have sleep, I have I got nothing going for me. Um, and like my dad's the type of person, he travels a lot for work and he'll go on a red eye, get off the red eye at like 5.30 in the morning, like not sleep at all on the red eye and just go about his day. He's like, oh, I'll sleep tonight and just like doesn't and I'll sleep like five, six hours. I'm like, I can't, I, I don't function like that. Like I crave and need my sleep. Yeah. Um, now I know you sleep with a weighted blanket. I'm not like watching you in your sleep, but <laughs> I've heard you say that before. What the heck is a weighted blanket? It's a gravity blanket. And actually I'm recording this podcast. In I know. I bedroom. see. Uh, and the weighted blanket is magic. You want to make sure you're not getting like, so it's basically sand or some sort of weighted beads uh, in there. Uh, so there's a brand called gravity blanket. There's other brands out there, weighted blankets. Uh, and that sort of is just proverbial hug from your blanket. So you get sleep a little bit better. It's activates the parasympathetic rest and digest system. Uh, so we're talking a lot about resting and digesting on this yeah. episode. So it helps with that and, and quality sleep is good for that. So you want to make sure that the weight's not too heavy, that you're being suffocated or, you know, like smothered to death at night, but it's, it, it, there are calculations that you can find online to find the appropriate weight for your weighted blanket. But I love it. And if I sleep in a hotel room, I don't sleep as well. Um, so I'd need to pack, I think my weighted blanket with me from now on. And how much does a weighted blanket weigh? Uh, I don't, I don't know actually how much mine weighs. I, I don't know. My wife bought it for us. So I, I haven't weighed it. I don't so know funny. exactly. Yeah. Do you share the blanket or do you like oh, have yeah. individual blankets? No, it's the whole, the whole bed. Okay, um, I'm going to look into this. Yes. And my kids have one too. My daughter has one. My son has one. Yeah. They oh, all wow. sleep better with it. Your girl is not a huge fan of eating salads and vegetables or pretty much anything that is not coated in some dressing with a little bit of flavor something to enhance the taste of eating vegetables, if you will. And that is where Kari Foods comes into play. I tried these products for the first time, I think like about a little over a year ago. And I was super intrigued because they are salad dressings that are 100% plant-based. They're paleo. They have no gums, no preservatives, no additives, no like icky gunk in them because a lot of dressings are just filled with you know, a bunch of ish that you really don't want to consume, which also causes most of us to get the dressing on the side at restaurants. And the flavors of dressing add so much more of a taste. But what I love about Kari Foods, though, is how versatile their products are. Okay, so you can use like the creamy Caesar for, you know, a traditional Caesar salad, or you can use the Greek vinaigrette and marinate some chicken with it. You can use the creamy verde for a little taco or enchilada action. There is so much goodness that can come out of using their products. Oh, and they are also Ezra approved. If anyone is wondering, the kid is obsessed and it's also a good way maybe if your toddler or child or is a little bit pickier when, when it comes to vegetables awesome way to get them to eat their veggies a little bit more kari foods is also family owned by two sisters who are the absolute sweetest 
And if you're wondering where you could snag their products, you can head on over to carifoods.com and order there. You can also find them in select specialty stores throughout Manhattan, San Diego, LA. They're in Erwan. For those of you living in LA, beyond jealous of that right now. And keep up to date on their Instagram at Kari Foods so you can see what other stores they are getting into soon. You can also snag 20% off your first order with the code RACHEL. R-A-C-H-L. All right, now back to today's episode. Um, I have two more quick questions about high cortisol. Are there any, first one is, are there any foods that are like good or bad for, if you have high cortisol? Is that really usually not food related unless food's making you stressed? Yeah, food, well, foods that will drive inflammation can raise cortisol levels. So back to that core four uh, those are some things to consider because that raises inflammation, oftentimes originating in the gut. So that's the cascade. What goes on in the gut, gut is referred to as our second brain in the scientific literature. 95% of serotonin is made in the gut, stored in the gut. So gut inflammation can impact the gut-brain axis for sure, which then will down downstream will impact the brain hormonal axis and can raise stress hormones because inflammation and poor digestion is stressful for your body and can cause cortisol to spike. And what about exercise if you have high cortisol? So exercise, the theory of exercise, right, is to break down muscle to build it back up. Many people that have HPA axis issues or the adrenal fatigue, brain-based cortisol rhythm issues, uh, they break down muscle but don't build it back up as well as we would like. So exercising is good. Sweating is good. Moving is good. It can be a stress reliever for many people. So that's fantastic. The over-exercise, like training too hard for too long can be problematic and could be a component to perpetuating the cortisol dysrhythm uh, rhythm uh, problems. So that is something to consider is balance to with exercise is definitely important. Resting is quite important. It's when the body's building the muscle back up. So not overdoing it. And what does that look like? What does overdoing it mean? It depends on where you're at and all the other variables that make you, you have a play. Like what do, what do the other components of your life look like? Some people can handle more exercise than other people based on where they're at. So we have to, if you're paying for exercise, quote unquote, if you feel like really bad for like multiple days after your exercise, you're probably doing too much for where you're at at this point in your life. Got it. Yeah. Like I'm someone who I go to a bar class like two to three days a week and I love that. It's like not, it's not high intensity. It's like low. I get to like have camaraderie in the morning. I love it. And then the other week I went to a kickboxing class, which is obviously a lot more energy. And I noticed that the rest of the day I didn't feel stressed. And I almost feel like, cause it's like, I let all this stress out when I was like kickboxing and jumping and blah, blah, blah. And that mm-hmm. it made me almost feel better. Um, but yeah. I was told in the past to like, not to like slow down on workouts and do yoga and this. And Honestly, yoga stresses me out. I don't like yoga. I get nauseous. I'm like, oh, I can't do upward. Do- I can't do the doll. Like, I don't know. I'm just it not makes, into it. Makes kind of sense with the, the fact that you're getting, you get dizzy sometimes with like uh, invert, like getting up. I could see the downward dog and the inversions and all that yes. really impacting you. Yeah. And my husband, he's like doing headstands like all over. I'm like, I can't do that with you. Sorry. Go by yourself. Um, now, female hormones and infertility is something that I've opened up about. I struggled to get pregnant for a couple of years then eventually like kind of not gave in, but like went to go see um, 
a reproductive endocrinologist, and that is how we conceived Ezra. I still, to this day, do think that my amenorrhea was caused by high cortisol and high stress, mm-hmm. um, and I really didn't solve that enough to give my body the chance to like do its yeah. thing. Um, and like my biggest, I mean, should, like if this is my biggest fear, I'm I'm lucky. But my biggest fear is that I'm not gonna be able to get pregnant again because I'm like falling into the same trap of what I was doing pre Ezra. That when it comes to getting pregnant, I'm not going to be able to conceive. Now I have a very a large following of people that are struggling to get pregnant. They were on birth control, mm-hmm. went off birth control, don't have their cycles back. That was me. I was on, on and off birth control for 10 years, went off of it, and was told I have unexplained infertility. Um, and I'm obsessed with my fertility doctor. He's amazing. We just went to go visit him. He's a gem, Dr. Foreman. I've spoken about him a lot on the podcast. Um, but I did get a lot of questions about female hormones and infertility in general. So anything you're comfortable answering, of course, I feel like I've said that 10 times to you, but I just don't want to put too much pressure on you to like answer the influx of, of information. Um, this one's pretty obvious, but what are your thoughts on birth control was a huge question. Well, I think it's obviously a woman's right, uh, and it should be accessible and affordable. And and I'm I'm definitely an advocate for it in that way. But I also believe in informed consent, and I also believe in in when you're taking something to know the ins and outs of what you're taking. So I feel like a lot of times girls that are given given they're given it at, at quite a young age uh or it's given very flippantly for many different reasons even beyond contraception just skin problems and hormonal problems or heavy periods and it's just yeah. given like candy and there's really little to no conversation between the doctor and the patient that's a problem no i had nothing i was 16 years old and i had a heavy period and cramps and i was just like given birth control like i was taking advil yeah exactly and then Okay. And then it's not, that's not something that you take for a week. It's something that you're on for many women for years and years and years and years. And it's like, well, why are you on it? I don't even know. I was just put on it and there's really was no conversation. It's just so ubiquitous that I I feel like there just needs to be a bigger conversation of just educating out. Okay. If that's, if you know all the ins and outs of it and you want to take it, fantastic. That's great. But many women don't know. And then they're later on in their life and it's really impacted their hormones. It's really impacting their fertility Uh, and coming off of it in that sort of post-birth control time. Amenorrhea is super common and something that I see on a daily basis uh, and it never came back after coming off the pill or, and we really have to dig deep to see what's causing that. And obviously looking at things beyond the pill too, that could be causing amenorrhea. It's not just the birth control's fault, but uh, it is uh, obviously a modulator of our hormones, and we need to realize, you know, if you're taking anything like that, uh, what it could be doing to you. So, say someone just got off birth control, they gave this gave themselves X amount of months to see if they got their cycle back, and they don't have it. What what do, what do they do? What do you recommend? Well, I, I would run a test, uh, that Dutch test that we talked about. It looks at all the estrogen metabolites, estrone, estradiol, estriol, E1, E2, and E3, and the total estrogen amount. It measures progesterone, and then we look at the ratio between es- estrogen and uh, progesterone, and we look at testosterone too. So it may be us uh, supporting liver detox pathways 
to clear that out. Some things like N-acetylcysteine and milk thistle and glutathione. I'm throwing things out there, but just blends of these that could be supporting liver detox pathways to clear out the hormonal imbalance if that's the problem. Uh, and things to support the brain hormonal axis, the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. It's oftentimes a pituitary issue. The brain's like, what the heck? I'm not, I'm not on birth control anymore. I need to talk to the endocrine system again in a whole new way. So it's sort of, it's getting uh, different things like neurotropics or herbs and different natural medicines to support the pituitary gland actually speaking to the endocrine system again. Uh, and then something separate, but should be looked at is birth control's impact on the gut microbiome and the gastrointestinal system and its association with things like leaky gut syndrome, et cetera. And I see for some patients, not everybody, is this gut component to the hormonal component is that you have to deal with the, the gut brain axis, the connection between the gut and brain and your gut and brain are actually formed from the same fetal tissue when you're in your mom's womb and they're linked for the rest of our life through the gut brain axis. I find that from some women, it's healing the gut that then allows the brain to speak to the endocrine system again. So it's, it's going upstream, finding out what's causing this impediment to hormonal balance in your life. So sad. It like really scares me because like all these little teeny boppers like myself, like went on it, was on and on for 10 years, like naively said to my husband when I was 26, all right, let's start a family. I'm ready. And then, you know, didn't have a cycle and didn't know what to do. And then, you know, you don't have a cycle that made me really upset. It made me feel like I wasn't a woman. And then that made me stress. And then I was high stress. And then my cortisol got high because I wasn't, it's just like a vicious cycle. Yeah. And you're just kind of like a lost, lost soul. Now, when you go to like a uh, OBGYN and I have nothing against traditional medicine at all. Again, I dabble in everything, but uh, when I went to my OB, they didn't give a shit. Like he just immediately gave me Clomid and was like, all right, like try this and like see if you ovulate. And I didn't like, I didn't even know what Clomid meant. Um, who do you recommend? And like, who, yeah. What kind of doctor do you recommend someone sees when they come off of birth control, do you recommend that they do try and find access to a functional medicine doctor? Because I've gone to three OBGYNs and no one was willing to help me. Yeah, I think go obviously start with the OBGYN, see if you get any support there. I don't want to like blast the whole industry because I think they could be a no, tool in the toolbox. But I, I think that complementary to the conventional treatment is getting a different perspective, getting some more tools in your toolbox. We can all come together at, with the best interest of the patient in mind. Uh, and I think that, yeah, going and we, we obviously see patients online. They can get that at drwilkle.com or go to functionalmedicine.org and find someone locally. Uh, and it's a directory you use your zip code if you want someone locally and not online. So yeah, I, I definitely would say getting a functional medicine perspective is definitely something to consider. I think that was golden for me personally, like even when I was going through infertility, because I was able to see like Dr. Lippman for acupuncture. And like, I would go like when I was ovulating and do everything that I could to enhance it and kind of blend all the worlds like together, which I think was helpful. And I also, I had a C-section, like Ezra was mm -hmm. breached in my rib cage. My water busted when I was 36 weeks pregnant and there was no natural birth that was going to be able to happen. I wasn't even dilated right. when my water broke. So I'm the huge, biggest advocate of like everything together. But I also know that when I went gone to doctors, they just like said that I was fine and that nothing to worry about and not getting yeah. your period isn't, isn't okay in my opinion. And I'm nursing now, so I don't know what's going to happen when I'm done, but I guess we'll see. We shall see. Um, 
Now, when someone is trying to conceive or get pregnant, again, I don't, I don't know if this is something that you really specialize in. Do you have any like tips or like things that people, supplements or things that pe- people could take to like enhance their fertility or anything? What, you say besides, when they do, when yeah, they do when conceive? They're, when they're trying to conceive, like besides oh. throwing their legs in the air after. <laughs> <laughs> besides that, besides that. Yeah, besides that, Very like effective trick, superstitious uh, <laughs> trick, I guess. <laughs> uh, besides that gold standard, I would say that the thing to would be looking at the mechanisms at that at play. So, is if progesterone is low, you can use things like chaste berry or vitex or oh, I used to uh, take that. Yeah, wild yam. I mean, things things to promote. Or Shashandra, our friend that we talked about earlier, like that, that can also support uh, healthy female hormone levels. Uh, but nutrient dense foods are so paramount. So looking at foods that are rich with vitamin A and D and K two and healthy omega fats and clean uh, protein, nutrient density is so paramount because those are the building blocks to healthy hormones. So looking at your macros, your proteins, fats, and carbs, looking at the micros, all the fat-soluble vitamins that are so deficient in the modern American diet, looking at uh, ample amounts of B vitamins from the foods you're having, all of these things are needed. So if that's not there, then consider that as being a part of the puzzle. It's not normally one thing that's the magic bullet. It's normally a confluence of factors that in- that's promoting a healthy physiology. Um. I can keep asking you fertility questions for four hours, but I'm I, there's still other topics. I'm like looking at my bolded list of things where I was like, all right, no, I need to stop talking about infertility now. But but if maybe we'll get back to it. But um, okay, my next thing, CBD oil. What are your thoughts on it? I haven't heard you talk about CBD oil, so I'm actually curious. All right, so I actually uh, do think it's a good tool to use for some people. Uh, it's uh, typically in the form of broad spectrum hemp oil that has higher CBD content. Uh, I think it's something that I um, have written about, not at length. It's a tool that I use for patients that need it. Uh, I love the studies coming out. It looking uh, to be a beneficial tool for people with anxiety, people with sleep issues. Uh, people with inflammation. So those typically the three categories of people that I use it for. And it's a tool. Again, it's not a magic bullet that's going to cure mm-hmm. everyone's all the problems, but it is definitely a modulator and it does move the needle for many people. Some people need some THC in it, which is the psychoactive compound, uh, which is not legal in all the states. And you have to look at what's obviously legal and be law-abiding people. Uh, but the CBD... Uh, it doesn't have THC or has negligible amounts of THC. It's the Wild West, right? I mean, there's so many CBD oil companies. We get approached on a weekly basis of try the CBD products. It's every day we have CBD products. So you want to make sure that you're getting reputable uh, brands, well-respected in the industry, third-party tested, organic. You want to know what you're taking. Because some people, especially people that are more sensitive to these things, they could have bad reactions to this stuff. It is generally safe. It is most people are going to, if if like the worst thing is they're going to notice anything. <laughs> but uh, you obviously want, if someone's taking it, they want it to be effective. So go for the yeah. well-respected brands and lean into it. Start off low and slow. And I think that, you know, it's definitely for those people that I talked about, I've seen it do uh, amazing things for them. 
That's very good to know. I'm going to let Jordan know because actually right on my right shoulder is his CBD oil he takes before he goes to sleep every night. And I'm like, you sleep fine. You don't have anxiety. I'm like, why are you, like, what are you doing? He just like, I, whatever. <laughs> so I want to talk about inflammation, the juice of your book, the like bread and butter to, to you at least right now. Now I took the quiz. I'm not telling you what I got in this public forum because I really didn't do very well. Um, I'm just kidding. Maybe I'll tell you in a little bit, but I have in my notes as a question that I wanted to ask, what the fuck is inflammation? Because when Jordan, when I told him that I was interviewing you, he's like, oh my God, I have such bad inflammation. I'm like so excited for this episode. And I just like rolled my eyes at him. I'm like, how do you know you have, like, he's just, he's a, he's a, he's a rare breed. Um, what is inflammation? How do you like know if someone has it besides taking your quiz in here? Um, and just give us the rundown. Well, first of all, I want to be best friends with your husband. It's my my mission in life. He, he's looking for friends, so he's all yours. <laughs> <Just> kidding. <laughs> he's going to kill me. Uh, so it, inflammation is the common link between just about every health problem. Uh, it is a product of the immune system. So it's not inherently bad, right? We talked about cortisol. It's not inherently bad. Our gut microbiome, bacteria, it's not inherently bad. So we want balance. Balance, balance. Inflammation, same thing. We want balance. Uh, so chronic inflammation is inflammation too high for too long, sort of this low-grade inflammation that is linked to anxiety. It's linked to depression. It's linked to fatigue. It's linked to infertility. It's linked to, linked to hormonal imbalances. It's linked to autoimmune conditions, digestive problems, because it's the body out of balance. The immune system's not regulated properly. So it is uh, definitely at the heart of my clinic and heart of the book, The Inflammation Spectrum, because it's educating people that inflammation exists on a spectrum from mild symptoms, like, like we talked about, mild bloating, mild fatigue, background anxiety maybe, to the other end of the inflammation spectrum, which is a full-blown hormonal problem or autoimmune condition. And then there's everything in between. So it's really educating people about this. So I started the book out with the quiz, which is adapted from questions that I ask patients. For people to go take themselves through the inflammation spectrum and look at brain health, look at gut health, look at hormone health, look at musculoskeletal health, look at detoxification health, and kind of measure where inflammation levels may be. It's obviously not a lab, but it is showing people as a pointer to see these are signs and symptoms that are associated with inflammation. End of story. So we are able to quantify where more or less inflammation levels may be. Um, so that's what inflammation is. And the good news is that it's largely improvable and reversible and overcomable and at least manageable uh, for the majority of the human race. I was very, like, I felt like this quiz was, and I took it about two weeks ago when you sent them, when the book came out. And um, I was very overwhelmed with how much you were speaking to my brain when I was taking, like, I, I didn't do very well on the hormone endocrine system one, which again, I am, I, I, who knows, postpartum, I'm, I don't even know who my body is anymore. And then the blood sugar and insulin system one, I didn't do very well on that one either. So I was, I didn't read the next steps yet on what exactly I have to do because I was nervous. Cause last time I failed a quiz like this, I was told to like cut out every single thing that I was eating. And Jordan told me that he wants to do the is it like an elimination diet after he said he wants to do it? And okay. I told him that he needs to prepare all of his food if he does it. So <laughs> I don't know. You, you guys should do it together. 
I know. I think that once I'm done breastfeeding, I'll yeah. like take yeah, yeah, a yeah. D- deeper dive into my body. But for now, I'm just focusing on growing Ezra's body. And that's right. I mean, the, 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 it's we. I talk about it in the book at length. It's we're eating. Uh, nutrient-dense foods until we're full. It's not deprivation. And you don't have to eat like a rabbit to be, you know, healthy. So it's very nutrient-dense foods. Actually, would be really good from a like a milk production standpoint. But with that said, so I mean, yeah, it's not something that you can't do when you are nursing. But I get it. Sometimes it can be overwhelming to sort of ship things when you're in the middle of managing tons of other stuff. Um, But with that said, Yes. So based on the quiz score, you find out what areas are the most problematic. We get a specific toolbox. So for you, you have your hormone toolbox, your blood sugar toolbox, which those are connected. And what you'll see later on right after that section in the book that there's something called polyinflammation, which is the interconnectedness of the issue. So we talked about cortisol. Cortisol regulates blood sugar. So you could definitely have problems in both. That doesn't mean everybody with cortisol problems notices blood sugar issues, but for some people, it's definitely connected. So yeah, and then they'll have their own specific plan that it's meant to find out what their body loves and hates and find food peace, which so many people are like, what the heck should I be eating? And we're all different. So instead of me just making mandates and making broad sweeping statements, I want people to find out for themselves. And I teach them how to do that in the book. That's amazing. Well, when I can be a little more selfish and everything, I need to like do a deep dive into this. Um, uh, Another thing or topic were food sensitivities. Mm. Which I feel like we spoke about briefly with like the four things that like if you're not feeling well to, you know, eliminate or, you know, moderate, have moderate amounts, et cetera. But I don't even know where to begin with food sensitivities because I have my own thoughts on food sensitivity tests and Mm -hmm. I've taken them before and I found them to be like accurate at the same time as like inaccurate. Um, But what are your thoughts on food sensitivities and like especially the the blood tests that people take? Because that was a big question. I don't use them very often. I, I find that, and I talk about this in the book, is that that's they can be helpful. Oftentimes, I think that they feed into people's stress and anxiety about food. Yes. Like, and it's like, what the heck can I have? Like air and ice cubes and like low lectin bark and like, <laughs> what are you, what the heck are you supposed to eat? And I, to me, stressing about eating healthy is like counterproductive. It's causing more problems. So I want to keep things simple. And I think that's why a food protocol like in the book is, to be honest, it's still the gold standard in clinical nutrition and functional medicine. It's that's way better evidence than a lab that may or may not be helpful. Um, And it's way more cost effective too. It's very affordable. So it's, I I would say that there are definitely wonderful labs. We talked about the hormone test. We talked about Mm -hmm. gut microbiome testing. There are a I run labs for a living, but food sensitivity testing, I don't find being very helpful. There are some exceptions to that because let me go back up a bit, a little bit. It has more to do with the intestinal permeability, the leaky gut syndrome that's causing the overreaction to the food and less to do with the food itself. So if spinach or whatever other food that you're thinking of that's healthy shows up positive on the test, it's not so much the spinach's fault. It's the intestinal permeability that's causing the over the immune system to overreact and causing antibody production to spinach. So I think that's the problem. You have to heal the leaky gut syndrome to actually deal with it. So worry about the the gut problems, not the foods. Because you you know what? If you went to the lab the next day or the next week, you'll see different foods being positive on there. So what are you supposed to do? Just dance around and like, you can't just 
adjust your whole way of eating based on a snapshot in time when you had a blood test at 8 a.m. on a Thursday morning. Your immune system is a lot more dynamic and a lot more fluid than that. Uh, So I think that the larger picture is gut health, healing the gut, less to do with those labs. Now, there are like I run food sensitivity testing for people who are really calm things down. And I typically will run what's called a cross reactive test, which I mentioned earlier. But for people with celiac disease or other autoimmune conditions where they have overt gluten sensitivity or they have not eggs or dairy or gluten-free grains, like healthy foods that may be fine for somebody, I mean by that. Like they're having grass-fed mm-hmm. organic yogurt or they're having wild pasture-raised eggs or wild you know, uh, whole grain rice or sprouted this, sprouted that. But they're still having symptoms. So these foods are healthy. But they are causing cross reactions for some people. It's it's sort of the case of mistaken identity. So if like rice is on there or eggs on there, it's a gluten sensitivity to rice or egg. So it's a way the immune system's tagging those foods with the gluten antibody. That's the exception. For people that need that lab when it's clinically appropriate, we run that test. But that's not everybody. So that's kind of my thoughts on it. No, I love you for saying that. Thank you. Because I think sometimes people are just bored and they were like, I farted after I ate like peanut butter. I guess I'm sensitive to it. And it's like, I, it, it drives me crazy. I've been contacted by a lot of food sensitivity tests to like partner with them and, you know, to take the test and work with them. And I've taken one of the tests like three years ago, Jordan and I did it. And one of the things came back and it was completely accurate. I said soy. And when I eat soy, I really just feel like absolute garbage. But I think that's more of an allergy for me than in a sensitivity or intolerance. But I won't talk, I won't talk about those things on a basis because I think it just leads to kind of like a obsessive mentality over like, okay, I'm intolerant to like apples. It doesn't mean that like you're going to die if you eat an apple. Like you just, just yeah. eat it. And if, and if you think you feel like shit after, don't eat it anymore. But if you eat it and you feel good, there's no reason to cut it out. Absolutely. And, and, and to be honest with you, microbiome, like uh, the bacteria, if you haven't had a food for a while uh, and, or if you're having too much of a certain food, certain bacterial colonies can cause like bloating and digestive systems symptoms from it. But Oftentimes, it's, it, for some people, it's not so much the food, it's just they're having too much for the microbiome or they, they need their microbiome to adjust to this, this way of eating. So it, it's not so cut and dry. I agree with you. And I think we have a bigger problem of, with orthorexia and like the stress and anxiety about eating healthy and culture. And I think this food sensitivity testing are unintentionally, they're not trying to cause that. But I think that that can definitely trigger for some people that's not helpful. A hundred percent. I feel like I could bring you back on just to talk about like orthorexia. Um, I have two more questions and then uh, I have a, something. You're going to hate me by the end of this. I have so many questions for you. Allergies. <laughs> what are like a, like a quick holistic way to beat allergies besides Jordan shooting up nose spray at 75 times a day because I'm so over him doing it. And then he like gargles spit after. It's just like what can, if he has such bad allergies, like what can someone do or like not just him, anyone do to like beat that? Cause I feel bad. He like can't breathe. He does the neti pot. He does this. He does mm-hmm. that. Like, what are some like holistic remedies for allergies? So, and we're talking about environmental allergies, like spring dance. Yeah. And like maybe pollen. dust, like yeah, dust, dust, like standard things. Well, the bigger picture is like, I, I hate keep bringing it back to the gut. It's not as simple as that, but when you're dealing with 75% of the immune system residing in the gut, 
oftentimes people with allergies, they have to look at the gut. So I don't want to be too reductionist and say it's just the gut, but it's definitely something to consider for some people uh, is dealing with gut health to calm down this overreaction, just like we talked about the food reactivity test. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the immune system is overreactive where the dust is really just the check engine light. Why, why is the immune system... Why is it, it? Why is it at its tipping point? And oftentimes, it's gut stress going on there. Uh, so, some other things that to consider would be acupuncture. I found to be quite oh. beneficial for allergies and calming, and the mechanism. Obviously, we don't uh, meridians like that's. I'm not an acupuncture oriental medicine doctor, but I, I definitely have seen consulting patients referring out from my functional medicine center to acupuncture. And it'd be beneficial for them. Homeopathic uh, remedies can be beneficial where they're just small amounts of certain things and sort of this calming down of the immune system. Um, Stinging nettle is an herb that people can use. Vitamin C can help the immune system too. Uh, So those are some things to consider. Awesome. And my mom's question for you. (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha. She goes, I went through menopause years ago and I'm having hot flashes again. What is that common? Oh, <laughs> I wild. love it. I love your mom too. I feel like I know them from social media. Uh, uh, so uh, it is not normal, but it's definitely common. So you want to, to the, the idea that hot flashes are just to be settled for, that means every woman going through menopause would have it. Uh, it's normally a confluence of several factors. It doesn't mean that you aren't going to have moments of that, but if it's a significant problem in your life, you should look into it. If it's just re- mild and it's here and there, and it may just be a part of the transition of life. No big deal. Don't read into it. But if it's a significant problem, and it is for many people, if it's waking you up at night, if it's really disturbing your sleep, I would really look into what's causing that. So measuring measuring estrogen and progesterone, seeing where it is age appropriately. And if you're having significant imbalances going on there, supporting detox pathways, going back to liver function and gut function there. And uh, some herbs like Dong Kwai uh, can be, be- uh, beneficial of supporting estrogen balance. And we talked about Vitex supporting progesterone. So mm-hmm. the, going back to estrogen, progesterone balance and using herbs and using other tools to support those balances is definitely where my mind would go for a case like that. Thank you. There you go, mom. There you go. Um, now you said that you could have, one of the questions was how to find a functional medicine doc- practitioner like bar you. And you said you have something on your website for that. So yeah, well, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. And now my last question, five wellness practices that everyone can afford because like to feel like the best, their best selves, because I know that like, it's kind of known in this industry where you can't afford this or you can't afford to like do wellness practices, but there's things that you can do that may cost you like a few dollars or things here and there. But what are five wellness practices that you think like the general masses can afford or they should should invest in and allocate yeah. money towards. So low cost stuff, yeah, or free stuff. So I, 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 it is my heart and passion to make functional medicine more accessible and more affordable to more people. So we launched online group classes. Like normally I do one-on-one stuff like uh, via webcam, but the online group classes are, the attempt is to make it more accessible and affordable to people. So just like putting that out there that, and it's not just me. There are other functional medicine doctors too that are aware of this to make it to, to democratize this amazing field of healthcare. Um, but in lieu of pe- some people don't need functional medicine doctors or want them. So some easy things for people to do to start improving their health today that are low cost or free. Number one 
would be decrease the amount of sugar that you're having. I heard it once that it's a recreational drug. It should be used sparingly, not all the time or not at all for some people. We all have different sensitivities or tolerances to sugar. Some people are more insulin resistant. Some people are very more insulin sensitive, meaning they can have more. And some people are like, I can't have anything or I have symptoms. So I'm not saying avoid it entirely for everybody, but just look at the amount you're having, try to decrease it. It's going to really no, do. Sorry, just like what yeah. kind of sugar, like fruit sugar, or even natural sugars no, in general or not, not fruit sugar. I wouldn't put it fruit sugar under that for some people that are more insulin resistant. Yes. Fruit sugar too. Okay. But people that are insulin sensitive, like meaning they they're fine with fruit. Many people are fine with fruit. That's fine. I'm talking about added sugar. So refined sugar, processed sugar, even lots of uh, added natural sweeteners too can be problems. And I think like you mentioned, Wetterspoon, they're a fantastic company. So I am all for people having honey and maple syrup and going for these natural sweeteners. I think they're fantastic. But more the processed refined sugars people should be mindful of. Um, And I would say increasing healthy fats would be number two. They're satiating, they're nutrient dense, the human brain needs it, the immune system or hormones need it. Things like avocados and olives and avocado oil and olive oil, which we've talked about in the show, uh, and uh, wild caught fish and soaked nuts and seeds, meaning that it makes them more digestible. You can soak them in water. Um, And so those are that's number two, three. I would say wor- work on stress and bring some acts of stillness into your life. So maybe that's getting out in nature, which is completely free. Maybe that's just turning off technology and having some quiet time. Maybe that's getting like a cup of tea and using that as sort of this act of mindfulness and the ceremonial thing. Uh, bringing acts of stillness into your life. Uh, I would say four like move and make movement fun. So whether that's dancing in your living room or going and you love that class and you go and you do the, like you said, the bar class and you sweat, give yourself that time of movement that is fun for you. That's not arduous and punitive or punishing yourself, but actually enjoyable. Um, And five, I would say get a social community. Don't feel isolated because many people it's so counterintuitive and the illusion that we live the age that we live in because we're so connected, quote unquote, on social media. But yet I think we have an epidemic of loneliness and isolation like never before because we've lost the art of social connection, real social connection. And our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years. But yet look at our world. It's changed very dramatically in a very short period of time. And I don't think we we kids especially the like millennials and uh, I mean, I'm considered a millennial, but I mean, the kids that are even like that are growing up now, they're even, they've lost so much of the art of human connection and you see the rise of mental health issues like anxiety, depression, suicide, uh, horrible stuff. And largely that's to do with social connection. So get yourself a community, reach out, like don't be isolated. If you're listening to this right now, get out there uh, and meet people that are of like mind, that are positive, that are edifying, that will lift you up when you need to lift it up. So those are the, some things I would say. I love that. And especially the last one, because like I work remotely and, you know, it's from my apartment. So that's also why I like to go to bar class because it has like a sense of camaraderie for me. And yeah. then other than that, I call a friend every single day because it's yeah. just like whether my walk to the train or where the rock walk to the grocery store and I am friends with my friend, with the people that work at the grocery store. Like it's <laughs> nice to have like a community because you could feel really yeah. lonely. 
And I even see that with like kids, like I'm sure I'm going to be a hypocrite and get, get Ezra an iPad one day, but I'm really trying not to, because I think that like he would isolate himself at the dinner table and there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with him trying with trying to make conversation. Um, but again, when he's screaming at the dinner table in a few years, I'll probably crank out an iPad because I'll, yeah. sure I'll give I up mean, at that no point. Shame, no shame for those isolated incidents. But look, my kids are 13 and 10 and they don't have any God. technology. So I they they have TV. We watch TV as a family. It's yeah, they don't, but they but when they're little, I'm, I'm, I'm not shaming any parent for doing that. I've done no. it, too. But it's not like this day in, day out, like on the phone. It's disturbing. We need to not do that to our kids. No, it drives me crazy. I don't even have a TV in my bedroom. We don't have cable. We have Apple TV. Like I, if we, if the TV broke for three weeks, I wouldn't even notice. Um, now I have five questions I ask everyone and there's one of them that I'm really excited to hear your answer. Um, and curious. The first one is what is one wellnessy trend that you have bought into, which I feel like you have a few, but what's like your one <laughs> wellnessy like trend that's like, you know, you're like, yeah, I, I'm a sucker uh, for that. Uh, wellness trend. I, I don't know. I feel like trends are funny, right? That they, they, are, they come and go. And even when the trend goes, if there's good science to back it up, like it's still going to be there even when the light's mm-hmm. not on it and the zeitgeist is passed. But I think adaptogens are having its trendy moment, but I've used tre- adaptogens before and I'll use them when the zeitgeist has passed too. But yeah. you could say adaptogens, I guess. I guess. What is one wellnessy trend that drives you crazy? That's like nails on a chalkboard to you. Oh man, I guess, I don't know. I, I get, I have a problem. I think the bigger picture of Instagram where it's like this, like visual, like FOMO inducing content, I think that's in the wellness world right now. And it's not good. Like if someone's causing you to feel like insecure about yourself, unfollow yeah. them. <laughs> so I think that's part of the wellness world. I don't know if it's like a trend, but it is a trend. It is a trend. It's this FOMO inducing stuff. And the person that's posting it probably isn't meaning to do it, but I, it's, we need to have healthy margins with that stuff. No, I couldn't agree more. There's a lot of my friends that I, who I love and adore, but like they post like going to get this facial and then this massage and then this cryotherapy and this sauna. And I'm like over here with Ezra, like pinching my boob all day. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm not doing that. Like, please stop rubbing it into my face. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, my third one is when you were growing up, what was your go-to fast food order at what chain? Oh, Lordy, Lordy. So I, I grew up in a home that was like really uh, interested in wellness and health. So I actually oh, did gosh, have- of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I'm going to say I, I, I had fast food, so I'm going to tell you. But, but I had a very strange childhood. So I was doing weird adaptogenic tonics in the 80s and 90s, guys. But so with that said, I had a like, rebellious stage here and there. Uh, I lived in the wild side, if you will. Uh, <laughs> it, it would probably be like fast food. Like Wendy's burger or one of the, the ch- spicy chicken. Yeah, the spicy with chicken these, sandwich. With yeah. and Wendy's fries, in my opinion, were one of the better ones. Yeah. And and a frosty. Like, yes. Yeah. I, I don't yeah, that tastes amazing tasted amazing. I haven't had it since the nineties, but hey, I, I I still can remember the taste of it. I know. Last time I had fast food was when I was studying abroad in Florence, which sounds like an oxymoron. Um, and I had McDonald's. It was like three o'clock in the morning. It's the only thing that was open. Um, I remember getting like a cheeseburger, French fries and chicken fingers. Um, yeah, I used to go to fa- get fast food a lot. My mom cooked a lot, but I, I you yeah. know, I like fast food too. And on the West Coast, like I've had, I, I, had in and to, out. I, I have had it in and out. Yeah. But, but I grew up on the East Coast, but West Coast, like my wife's from LA. 
I, but I'll, I'll get a better version of it. I, I get the protein style. And I, so I guess I still have had fast food, but it's been like better versions of it. It's important. It's important to just live. Yeah. Um, the fourth one is if you weren't doing this for a living, if you weren't changing people's lives for the better and helping them every way you can, what career path would you have chosen? It would be writing, which I still get to do. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, I love writing. So I would be in journalism somehow. Amazing. And the last question, it's your last day on earth. What are you eating for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And I, I know you don't usually eat breakfast, but I'm going to make you choose a breakfast food because it's my favorite meal. <laughs> All right. The art of breakfast. I you can't get in between people and their lovely breakfast. <laughs> the, uh, I think if I could have anything, I, food I really yeah. enjoy, I love chia seed pudding. It's like amazing. I'd have a huge vat of chia seed pudding with like almond milk uh, and chia seeds and maybe some blueberries on top. Um, for lunch, I love like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I love the, this pesto zoodle bowl and ketotarian. I love this. I could have a massive bowl of that. Um, for dinner, I, um, if I, I, if I'm going for like a, something that I really love the taste of it, I'd get like a Capello's grain-free pizza. Yeah. I like those. my jam and it's like almond flour pizza and like avocado fries with like this chipotle aioli dressing. We have these rest this recipe in ketotarian. So that's like yeah. an epic day for me. And like, maybe like a good solid, like keto milkshake with like some chocolate and peanut butter. I am a peanut butter. And I think you, I yes. love looking at your feed. Cause I love that you love peanut butter too. So I, too. I, I could have a huge, like my, my dessert would be a big thing of peanut butter just off of a spoon. And I'll probably have the whole jar of it. <laughs> you are so funny. I'm like, where's the stack of chocolate chip pancakes? It's your last day on earth with like a slab of butter. Just kidding. Oh no, no. That yeah, sounds I mean, delicious. I, maybe like, yeah, I like, like, pan, I like pancakes, like the grain, like the grain free pancakes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a desire to like go have, I really, even if it was the last day, I, I think the healthy stuff tastes better. No, I'm right there with, I really know I am. I'm like mocking you because I think it's funny, but I'm right there with you. Um, what, what is your favorite dessert though? Like if you had, like if you have a dessert, do you like, are you more of a cookie, a cake or a brownie person? Like a peanut butter cookie. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I love salted peanut butter cookies. They're very underrated. Well, Dr. Will Cole, thank you so much for all these insights and amazing, amazing answers to these questions. I have a feeling I'm going to have to bring you back on because I didn't even get to more than half the questions, but I saw the time and I was like, Rachel, shut the hell up. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, and Rachel. please tell everyone where they could find you and listen to you. And I know you said in the beginning, but just say it again so everyone yeah. can hear it again. Sure. It's uh, everything's at drwillcole.com, D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. And my handle on Instagram is at drwillcole. Same thing. Amazing. And don't forget to order his book. Well, both of your books, actually, I'm going to link to both of them in the show notes. And then you can take the quiz and you can see who failed more, me or you. All right. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. 